What's up, Familia? Dayspring here with a very exciting episode. We have X-Men Mutant Academy producer Jay Halderman on the podcast today. We sit down with Jay, who, by the way, is a total rock star. (laughs) He was telling us all about the development of X-Men Mutant Academy, how it started off as one game and then that game was scrapped. It became the game we have today, how he took it to the premiere and he had some of the X-Men cast playing it. It's it's all in the interview. You're going to be so excited. He has worked in video games for a while. He was in production in Gears, Star Trek, Elite Force 2. He has been in a bunch of things. And we're so excited for you to listen to this interview. On the X-Men news front... I don't, it's been kind of quiet these last few weeks. I mean, obviously we've had a ton of rumors and alternate covers hit the, hit the internet. You know, there's a big rumor right now floating around that the original X-Men cast, the Fox X-Men are, are, are going to be in Secret Wars. I, I think that's pretty safe to assume they're going to be in Secret Wars. So you know, until confirmed, it's really not anything big in terms of news. But yes, I, I think it's safe to assume that Fomka, James Marston, Holly Berry, Patrick Stewart, all very likely are going to appear in the MCU's Secret Wars Avengers movie coming. You know, we we also got the announcement that the X-Men vote is going to be happening again. And and that's sort of been contentious with fans such as myself, because we, and I felt like this last year, I feel like we just did the vote and these stories are finally coming into fruition with the, with the current team. We're not even coming into fruition. They're just kicking off. And now we have to elect a new team. And as we saw in years past, the, the same team does not stay. It is a major shakeup. Multiple characters leave. We get to vote one in. You know, I think of the inaugural like X-Men Cohen election. Everyone was so excited for Polaris. I mean, it was Polaris's moment to shine. And her run in Dugan's X-Men absolutely went nowhere. I mean, again, it was over before it began. And she had really great moments, especially with her coffee cup. We were very excited for her, and she was coming off the heels of X-Factor, which, you know, Familia, I wasn't a big fan of X-Factor, but Flink, Mr. Scott Free are huge fans of of X-Factor. We've had Leah Williams on the podcast, and and let me be clear, it's Leah Williams's X-Factor run we're discussing here, since Polaris has been in multiple uh, X-Factor teams, but... We've had Leah Williams on the podcast. I think she's a fantastic writer. Again, the co-hosts all love X Factor. So, you know, it didn't jive with me, but that's not to say that there wasn't hype for the character and it wasn't really realized, (laughs) unfortunately. So, you know, we are a little disappointed to hear that Firestar, who was a contentious elected (laughs) X-Men member, I don't want to say contentious, but a lot of folks were just like, why Firestar? So, you know, I think she's had a very great presence in the books. I think she's been written in a very fun way. But I was hoping to get more of her before it was time to vote for someone else in. Let's see how they handle it. I I, I am the big fan. I am a big fan of Let's Wait and See. But, you know, I'm not really... 
I'm not really excited for this election. I, I think having these annual elections, annual hellfire galas, there's a lot of problems that arises with that. I mean, mainly it's a suspension of disbelief because, you know, there is a sliding timeline within comics. And we know the MCU has been around for like, what, like nine to 12 years within its own universe. And every year that goes by, we're just aging it more. So the MCU, or the MCU, the Marvel Universe has been around for 15 years now in canon. And I kind of like the idea of a sliding timeline, but this forces you to think, wow, this is the third election in, in universe. They actually mentioned it's been a year. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's some problem inherent problems with that. I think in, in terms of just the X-Men books, by the way, because the X-Men can, can resurrect and they are immortal. It's, uh, it's not too much of a problem, but in the MCU, I keep saying the MCU in the Marvel universe, at large, I think it presents itself uh, as a problem. But, you know, I thought Inferno was going to address time and multiple timelines in its run. It hasn't. It looks like Sins of Sinister and Immortal X-Men will be doing that. I mean, who knows? So let's see where the current X-Books go. As you know, I have been not a fan of the books since Inferno and Trial of Magneto. I thought those weren't very good done events, but... Dark Web, even though I don't necessarily agree with everything in Dark Web, I've enjoyed reading it. And obviously, we've had Cole on podcasts. We've been talking to War Lion about coming on Geeky JP, who, Familia, if you don't already engage with Geeky JP and all of the cosplay he does, it's that's his Instagram name, Geeky JP. Just go, go check him out. But you know, I, I love the communal aspect of talking about dark web. So it is kind of tinting my perspective on the crossover. But, you know, I've gotten some tea on, on it, on how it's going to un unfold. <sighs> I can't I can't betray my sources here. So I'm not going to say anything, but I'm I'm kind of OK with how it lands. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's great. I don't think it's terrible. I, and I think there is a very powerful moment. And I was sort of like going through it in my head as I was jogging this morning, like kind of like the the climax of the series, which is going to be coming out soon. And I was like, you know what? I read it and I was kind of like eh, about it, but thinking about it, it's so powerful and it's kind of beautiful. But anyways, that's a long-winded way of saying that I don't think it's going to be a total dud. I don't think it's going to be iconic. I'm definitely... From what I have read thus far and, and sort of the tea I've gotten, I am ranking Dark Web above Inferno and Trial of Magneto. How about that? Oh, and Judgment Day. I mean, that goes without saying. Judgment Day is like bottom of the barrel for me. <laughs> we were supposed to cover it on the podcast and we just did not. I could not stomach through it. I Sorry, no, no, no shade to our eternal stance because I love the movie, but I couldn't get through the crossover. I thought the crossover was unreadable. And I was trying to defend it. The trying to defend my opinion the other day on DMs with someone who really loved Judgment Day, and I honestly could not even remember the reasons why I didn't like. It. I just remember I was reading it, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is not great." Oh, the X Men Judgment Day Jean Grey issue number one. I think you know. I I, I tell this to everyone. I'm just like I. Don't appreciate the marketing copy saying it was going to answer all questions of Jean Grey and the Phoenix. And people are like, oh, no, but it did. It was like, uh, no, it didn't. 
back during Ensong, we got that long established relationship between Gene and the Phoenix. People read it and it was there in Morrison. It was, you know, always a present thing in, in Gene's history that she is a Phoenix and the Phoenix is her. I know at the end of Phoenix Resurrection, they sort of change that and she let the phoenix go and she was here like leave me alone and this just reaffirms our relationship but i don't i i don't know and i also don't know why we need to address gene and the phoenix in a judgment day crossover i know inherently in the story the characters are being judged <laughs> so trust me i 100 understand that but editorially i'm like this isn't the time or a place i i would rather have gotten a conversation between gene and echo and talking about the phoenix and gene's relationship to the phoenix right we only got a happy phoenix day message from gene to echo but anyways we're going off the rails here I really am so excited for all of you to listen to this interview with Jay. He is incredibly articulate. I had to track him down on LinkedIn because, Familia, we've done interviews with the Ultimate Alliance 1 director, the X-Men Legends 1 director, X-Men Legends 2 director, who was the Ultimate Alliance 1 director. We love the video games here, the X-Men video games, quite a bit. And there's there's always been this how do i say this every time we we put out an episode that's video game focus the question always comes back to but x-men muta academy and i am so glad i was able to get jay down he remembers so much it's a really great conversation he is the games producer so he had hands in every stage of the process and was the one who actually delivered the final game to sony and he was there at the premiere, which was on Ellis Island. You guys have seen the footage of that. And he took the ferry back with a very special guest, and he talks all about it. It's such a wonderful interview. We also dive into Jay's history with video games, how he grew up with video games, what piqued his curiosity. We, of course, find out who his favorite X-Man is, and, <laughs> you know... It, it was, we won't hold it against him here, Familia, so that should tell you who uh, who his favorite X-Man is, but a kid, of course, because we love all the X-Men characters and his reasoning for loving Beast. I, I'm spoiling a little part of the interview there. You know, he, Beast is his favorite character, and, you know, I agree, 90s Beast is the best version of the character and we, of course, always joke around here that we hate Beast, but we we love Hank McCoy at the core of it. But anyways, this interview with Jay, it's just so wonderful. I am, you know, I, I, I don't really say this often, but I'm very proud of it because we really wanted to get answers about Mutant Academy. You know, how did the game come to be? Who were some characters left on the cutting room floor? And most importantly, because we're investigative X-Men journalists here, why wasn't Jean in her 90s outfit? All right, Familia, here's the interview with Jay. Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Dayspring and Scott Free. The name's Cable. Remember it. And the only people who can stop Apocalypse are the mutants known as Dayspring, Scott Free, and Michelle. This is Captain America, and we need to defeat Apocalypse.
Jay, I am so excited to be speaking to you today about X-Men Mutant Academy. <laughs> I have been trying to hunt you people down for such a while. Well, that's that's what us mutants get done to us. We get hunted down. So <laughs> it's and, and I was telling you this before we hit record just now. There are so many people in the power of X-Men Familia uh, that engage with our podcasts and our video content, and they always talk about Mutant Academy. And I think you guys, it was just such a great time for the X-Men in, in the early aughts because you had the X-Men movie and this game, man, it still slaps till today. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, it was funny when you emailed me, uh, it, it had been a long, long time since anybody had brought that game up to me. And, you know, I, I was like, wow, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a hot minute since I, I've uh, been on that game and it kind of, put me down a little trip through memory lane. So I'm really pleased to hear that you get that kind of feedback because, you know, you work on a game and then you move on to the next one. And sometimes you lose track of any sort of idea of the impact it might've had. So I'm really, that that's really awesome to hear. A lot of, a lot of really talented people worked on that game and uh, to, to bring that thing to life and, and under some reasonably challenging circumstances. So th that's great. Thanks. It's ludicrous to me that you haven't been asked about, about Mutant Academy for a long time because, again, the DMs, anytime I post something, because you guys have beautiful graphics from there and like great cutscenes, I still think hold up till today. And some people will just be like, you need to interview people from this. And even when we did the X-Men Legends series and the Mutant, you know, a lot, or Mutant Alliance, excuse me, the, the Ultimate Alliance series, people are like, but you got to do Mutant Academy. You have to do Mutant Academy. <laughs> well, awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it was a really big part of my life for a very concentrated period of time, and uh, you know, it was a hell of an adventure to to make that thing. So I'm glad to hear it. Um, it was a pretty interesting time in the history of of both Marvel and Activision, which is is the company that uh, um, you know published the game and and produced it. So um, yeah, I'm here to answer all the questions I can. It's just funny because. To be honest, and I want to set some expectations, producers don't get a lot of these. Yeah. You know, it's usually a, a designer or a director or something, you know, one of the uh, more traditionally known as a creative type. So, um, you know, bear with me. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I was definitely uh, involved in, in a lot of aspects of this game, though. So I should be able to answer a lot of questions for you. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning of the, of your journey because I we love video games here at Power of X-Men, and I want to know, what was the first video game you ever played? Well, I'm going to date myself a little bit here um, because the first commercial video game, uh, arcade game of any sort of, uh, you know, real importance was the year it was released the year I was born. So I've kind of grown up with the video game industry. Mm -hmm. And so I probably was exposed to some of the really early uh, video games, the arcade games, but probably not old enough to really play them or, or remember them. But the one that I really remember first was uh, my dad uh, went and played racquetball at this health club mm -hmm. and he'd take me and I was supposed to be watching the racquetball. But right off to the side over there was uh, a stand up of Space Invaders. Yes. And, and the thing in your track mode, you just hear the. Tss, tss, dun, 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 
dun, dun. and I just I couldn't uh, it was like a siren song mm -hmm. and I was just over there watching it and every once in a while if I could you know uh beg borrow or steal some quarters I'd play it I wasn't very good because you know I'm probably eight years old at the time but I was I was um, just enthralled with whatever was coming out of this machine and it just had this glow and it had this mirrored half glass that would kind of impart some color to it which shouldn't have even have been possible with the technology at the time you know you're like where is this coming from and so that was really the thing that first got me into it and then really the first thing I had at home was an Atari 2600 uh and actually we had the uh Sears branded version of the Atari 2600. Oh, yeah, you did. We weren't the kind of family would own an actual Atari. Uh, <laughs> we had the Sears branded version, but uh, I played an awful lot of Pitfall on that thing, uh, which is ironic because that ended up being um, the first game I ever really worked on that got released. So, um, you know, Pitfall and, and, and any of the arcade ad adaptations, and there was a game of called Combat, mm -hmm. and you just take these little janky little like t-shaped tanks and you'd kind of go through a maze and try to shoot a little dot at each other it was like a it was like a more combat oriented pong it was it was pretty pretty fun you could even kind of bend the shots around corners and stuff That's so cool man yeah yeah and then so uh you know from then on i just kind of <laughs> sucked it all in well, it's funny what you said about going to your dad's racket club and being enticed by the arcade. I mean, same thing for me. And I feel so bad for kids these days who don't get to go to like Pizza Hut, for example, yeah. and see the glow of the arcade or even the movie theater. I see the arcade at the movie theater still and no one plays there. But like you see that glow and you're praying your mom or in your quarter or in your pockets, you have a quarter and you can go and you can just play this game and you go home and you never you don't play the game. That's it. Like, that's it. The yeah. only time you can play it's there. And it sparks such a curiosity, you know, and, and such a passion for me, it was street fighter two and the, uh, the X-Men arcade game, obviously. Okay. Yeah. That's where it got me, but all right. Well, is that because you were already into X-Men or because, uh, just, that just was a kind of a happenstance that that's where, where you were at. It was a happenstance. I mean, my cousin and I were into like everything. You know what I mean? I, I don't think I was a real X-Men fan until later on, you know, when I started reading the comic books and collecting the trading cards. But like, you know, an arcade is an arcade, especially in the 80s and 90s. So you just mm -hmm. go there and you play everything and Street Fighter and X-Men. And, you know, those were the big ones that we right. played with. But I just love video games in general. But, you know, people who didn't grow up at that time don't, just I don't think can understand the magic of an arcade where you'd walk in the door and it was dark and the yeah. only light was really coming off the glows of these machines and they would be all lined up and it'd just be this cacophony of sound and some sound would just pull you to it and you'd come and see you know what, what was going on over there and decide whether that was where you wanted to lose your money <laughs> uh, and then you just like line up your quarters on the on this little ledge at the top and just you know yeah get, get ready to get ready to go. And if you were lucky, they, they had like one of those like coin exchanges where you put in a dollar and you get four quarters out. <laughs> yeah, or tokens. Or tokens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's funny because the only time I see an arcade now is an adult arcade where you go, you get drinks <laughs> and you play these vintage games right, there. Yep. But we're talking folks at home. These are like hard 
hardcore like arcades like your purpose to, is to go in there not to drink but just to play games and it was it was it was a vibe man it was a great time yeah and if you ever if there was any like some hot shot everybody would just kind of start standing around that guy and w- watch him go yes. to town and try to get a, you know if you watch the king of kong it was like that just watch this guy and he's usually probably i don't know he's probably you know, teenager or something, but to your, you know, 10 year old self, this guy is some sort of rock star. He's like a God, man. Like no one, no one. (laughs) It's so funny. You said that because one of my memories of playing street fighter at the arcade was against this guy who at the time must've been 15, but I was like (laughs) eight or something like that. But I thought he was like the biggest shot ever. And he was such an arrogant like person to Mm. me. He was here like, watch me get a perfect on this. And I was like, Oh no, I may go down, but you're not getting a perfect, you know what I mean? And I had him for once and I was able to get him, but awesome. Well, I didn't have that kind of luck usually with the, with the teenagers that were uh, hot shots on those games, but they were they did have attitudes that was crazy <laughs> so was it the, the, the this experience the, the Sears Atari the you know going to the racket club with your dad and playing space invaders was it all of that that kind of like sparked your curiosity in working in video games probably not so much working uh, in them uh, so I think what was probably more formative they were around for sure and I was fascinated by them and they kind of piqued this part of my curiosity and my create creative mind that Mm -hmm. I I was really into them. But in terms of ever thinking that there was a career behind them or something that I could do with them really didn't happen until maybe a little later. So my dad was uh, in something called MIS, which is kind of the old version of IT, but in sort of a management capacity of, and so they would kind of decide what kind of computer systems that big corporations would would have and how to how to integrate those into their business plans and he i remember one time in 1981 he brought home this giant case it was like a briefcase made out of kind of foam and when you peel, open up the clamshell of the foam and inside of it was a computer it was an hp an hp 85 and let me just describe this thing because it's going to seem like foreign i think to anybody this computer was all in one piece so it had a little screen on the left hand side and it was uh, maybe i mean it was really tiny maybe yay big black and white screen on the right side it had a a cartridge drive and so it kind of looked like um you know it's a little cassette but not not as skinny as a cassette so kind of looked like a you know like a like like a video camcorder tape if you're even old enough (laughs) to remember those and and then it had a printer that was kind of like a wide uh, calculator type printer on the top. And so it was just, just this whole integrated thing. And so, you know, when he wasn't using it for work, he'd show me how to load up programs off of the tape. And there was really only one tape that I was allowed to use. And it was the one that had the games on it. And there were these rudimentary games. Uh, I think they had something like a, a lunar lander type thing and uh, hunt the wumpus and a maze generator. And he didn't like me to use the maze generator because you had to print the mazes and it used up the paper. And <laughs> so didn't like that. But those days. But not being they, able to use the paper at home and all yeah. that stuff. Oh. Yeah. Well, I think it, I think it scarred me because now I'm I'm like not I really hate printing things now because <laughs> like I don't want to use the paper. <laughs> But it had this this game called Skier, and that and that I spent most of my time on that, I think. And it was just it was weird. It just had it would 
had little flags going kind of down the screen in a in a kind mm-hmm. of a pattern and you'd have to keep a dot between the flags or something like that and uh so I, I that I was fascinated by and because I had some sort of interaction with the 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 operating system of this machine it just started to dawn on me that oh humans make these things humans, you know, are able to manipulate these machines to make these things. And that's pretty cool. And then we had like the first IBM PC that was ever made. It was in 1981. It still had a port for a cassette uh, loader mechanism on the back. Um, But you just use these floppy disks. And it came with a game, but it was really bad. It was like uh, a race car that went down a street, uh, down a road and avoided donkeys. (laughs) And I was like, okay. Um, is this all this thing can do? (laughs) Yeah. But then, uh, uh, we brought home a, uh, sort of the first RPG that I'd ever seen. It was called temple of Apshai and it was kind of a dungeon crawler kind of a thing. And, and it really piqued my imagination. It really kind of drew me in and it turned out if you could, you know, break out of the program and you could see the underlying code. Mm. And so I was then able to kind of see behind the curtain a little bit and go, okay, this is how a game is made. Now I couldn't under, you know, I couldn't understand all of the code. It was, you know, but the first time that it was actually kind of human readable stuff that I could see. And I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta do this myself. And so they used to have computer, computer classes in elementary school. Oh, I remember. Go and you sit on the Apple II pluses or whatever. Is that the one with the turtle that you, you put in the command and the turtle would move around? So that was one of the program programs you could do, but I spent all my time uh, programming in graphics. Like you, you get this graph paper and you draw out the kind of picture you'd want, and then you could program how to plot those graphics <sighs> out. Interesting. Well, at some point, I wrote a basic program where I basically made a Galaga, where I had this little kind of shooter shooter turret down at the bottom, and you could move it left or right, and it would shoot at objects coming down the screen. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was, it was not great, but for, you know, it, it really told me that if I could think of something, there was a way for me to, to get that up on, on a, on a screen. And that was, that was really cool. And I think that was probably the moment that I started kind of considering that it might be a real, a real career. Although, you know, not in third grade, you're not really thinking, Hey, what am I going to do with uh, my life? How am I going to pay my life? mortgage? How am I going to pay my mortgage? No, you know, I, I don't think I'd started plotting how I was going to do anything at that point, but I, no. I, I certainly was hooked in it from then on. I'd get computer magazines and they would have, you know, how to program sprites and you would have page after page and you'd have to transcribe the code from the page and then try to run it and figure out where you'd mistyped something. And then you'd go, okay, now I know how to do this. Now let me do my own. Yeah. And so I was, I was making games from then until pretty much graduated high school and nothing was ever of any sort of significant, you know, awesomeness or anything, but you know, it was something that I was always drawn to. Yeah. And then, so once you graduated high school and you sort of have those, those things under your belts and, and all that experience from just, you know, toying around with the, with, with the games and, and figure out coding. Did you go to college specifically for coding computers, et cetera? No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I I would, what did you go to college for? So I took a little detour. I was, that wasn't the only thing I was passionate about. And I'd been making um, my own films since oh. I was also in, in grade school. 
And I so I was, I was really f just all in on filmmaking. And, um, so I went to the university of Southern California and their cinema television program. All right. And Man, that's, uh, that's a good place to go. <laughs> it, it was the best film school in the country. Um, and, uh, I, uh, you know, it was, it was a long shot for a kid from, from, uh, the suburbs, of you know, Chicago to think that he could travel that far away to go to a school, but I had yeah, you're, really you don't have Lori Lachlan or Felicity Huffman backing <laughs> your tuition. So no, but oddly enough, I was actually legitimately a rower there. So <laughs> Wait, really, were you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I have pictures I didn't have to Photoshop of that <laughs> somewhere. And so that's a weird. That was a weird segue, but yeah, um, I, I had a really great time there but for my senior thesis project i i just still had this complete attraction to the technology of things and i and they didn't have a video games program yet uh but they did have kind of a technology department for the film school and i went and i i petitioned the dean to do an interactive game uh project and i kind of i kind of couched it as a, an interactive movie um, but what I was really thinking is, you know, these CD-ROMs that had come out a few years before, people were making games out of those. And that was what a great way to juxtapose this kind of film language that, that I've been using, but to just put it into a new medium. And so they were like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I did for my senior thesis project. And at that point, I think it was kind of clear that I didn't, necessarily want to work in straight film at that yeah. point. I wanted to do something that had to do with technology for sure. Okay. Uh, still took a little while to get around to that. So right after college, uh, my first uh, real job was working at a company called Metrolite Studios and they were a computer graphic CG post-production house. And so they did uh, some of the special effects for movies like Total Recall. So you remember that scene where Schwarzenegger goes through the um, the x-ray machine and all mm -hmm. of a sudden he's a skeleton and they have the whole kind of scene uh, all yeah. done as, as skeletons. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They, yeah. they did that and they won an Oscar as part of that production and they did things like, you know, virtuosity. And I remember them even working on uh, Happy Gilmore, which is, oh. you wouldn't think that had CG in it, but uh, they had to erase some wires and, and, make the golf okay. ball do some things that w weren't possible to do in practical effects. It's so funny that you mentioned both of these, you know, movies because one total recall was a big hallmark of my childhood. I mean, I can just remember it and watching it. And then happy Gilmore, me and my cousin that I already mentioned, we watched Adam Sandler <laughs> movies on repeat, Billy Madison, happy Gilmore. So that's insane. Yeah, well, it's just amazing that even back in the 90s, things were happening with computers and film that uh, were just changing how movies got made. Um, oddly enough, they also worked on the uh, pilot for the X-Men animated series, like Pride of the X-Men. They did the oh. opening titles for that, but I guess it never really released, so... Interesting. Uh, yeah, because I think so Toei did the Pride of the X-Men, and then I believe whatever they did was just a like just copy and paste of the animation that we had in the episode. Do you, <laughs> well, do you do you happen to remember what the Pride of the X-Men? <laughs> no, they did that like? before I got there. Oh, that okay. was actually before I even got to college, but yeah. I remember there being posters on the wall and 
and and they they would do stuff for commercials and opening titles and mm-hmm. and you know the you know you see what studios make a movie they do their yeah. logos and stuff uh, but they also because they were owned uh, in part by a japanese uh pachinko machine manufacturer mm-hmm. and i think they saw nintendo which had come from making um playing cards originally and had grown into this you know monolithic just just great computer games company and they're like why can't we, we should be able to do that you know and so they kind of asked that studio to make a, a video game and uh, it was uh, a fighting game believe it or not so it's just kind of a weird uh, way that the universe works it's magic <laughs> around things it was a thing called uh, exotic fighters and I just want to be very clear on that word, exotic. There's probably a market for the other things you might have heard, but that's not what I was working on. Exotic yeah. fighter. Yeah, a lot exotic is coming fighters. up right now. Video game. Let's see. <laughs> All right, so you worked on it. So we worked on it. It was supposed to be, it was, you know, they, they were really great at making 3D graphics. They were great at, you know, animating characters and stuff. Uh, and they thought it would be kind of, not not all that big of a leap to create a video game using their their immense creative talents um it had a couple of things going against it um from the start but it it was um made for pcs which is not really your ideal fighting game platform um and it was meant to be networked like you'd play it over a lan and so you were supposed to be able to compete against other people on a local area network which Really, at the time, the the lag and stuff for that kind of a thing, you're just not going to get the kind of, you know, frame accurate yeah. results that you need for a fighting game. Uh, so with all the and, and we also motion captured all the uh, all of the animation. So we had these, you know, um, performance artists, stuntmen type people uh, so cool, up man. in a loft, and we had them all hooked up with those little white balls and their unitards. And I helped <laughs> set up, help pick and set up the the motion capture rigs. And the balls would kind of they do their their moves. We actually, I think, we had one of the uh, uh, martial artists from um, the Power Rangers. Oh, we- <laughs> I don't I don't remember which Power Ranger he was. Maybe the green one, but I, it's 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 a little fuzzy at this point. Yeah, Jason but, David Frank, who just passed recently. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the news on that. I did see the news on yeah. that. I didn't. Yeah. You know, I only got to meet his stunt double if it if it really was the green yeah. the Green Ranger. But that guy could move the the yeah. the, the, the stunt. I believe man. it. I believe it, man. But uh, we could just never get it all to kind of come together, but. I did know at that point that because I was technological and so I got to do all this stuff because I knew things and it was not in, in when it was sort of more of the film world, it was like, well, wait your turn or this is not, you know, it was just a little slower to break through. Um, but this was one of those things where if you knew something, you could just, you could do it. If you had the, if you had the knowledge and, and the energy and, and the willpower to just go do it you could do it and and it felt like the like the early days of filmmaking where nobody knew what they were doing so they didn't know how to tell a story on film they didn't know how to edit things together to to make things follow one another and so you were writing the rules and and in that time it felt like we were still writing the rules yeah and that just attracted me to that thing like a moth to a flame (laughs) so 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 where did you so I love this whole idea of pioneering, especially in like the nineties with, um, with video games and, 
and, and it really was uncharted territories. I mean, it's certainly not the market that it is today. I'm curious, where did you make the leap from there, from 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 doing exotic fighting <laughs> to going to Activision? So when it became kind of clear that that game was not happening, um, I started looking at options, and they were going to basically get rid of that division. And so I kind of volunteered to be part of the wave of cuts of that division. And my wife was going to, uh, was going to, in medical residency. She's a obstetric uh, and gynecologist. So she's, uh, was in her medical residency at, um, Harbor UCLA at the time. Mm -hmm. And she, through that, she had a connection with another resident who rode bikes with a guy who worked at Act Activision's I don't know, finance and accounting department or something. Okay. But he, he told me who to get, who he, he kind of told me who to send my resume to and talk to and kind of made sure that it got noticed. And so that was really fun. Uh, kind of cool that he would do that for me. And it's so I got, funny. That's how I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's no, like that's how good. jobs used to work that like mm -hmm. you, would, you would see, Oh, do you know someone? It's like, yeah, I know someone who works in accounting, <laughs> even though you're applying for an editorial job and stuff like that. And you just, get those kind of like that bit of information through there. The other, other thing I wanted to mention was I used to work at HarperCollins as uh, as a marketing and editor. And we did Jason Schreer's book from Kotaku called Blood, Sweat and Pixels. Okay. And yeah. a lot of people at home probably don't know this, but video games, just because they go into development doesn't mean they're going to be finished or they'll get mm -hmm. done. A lot of them just implode during production and you have a wave of people who are left unemployed. So it's interesting you said that that's what happened to you and you volunteered. Yeah, well, sometimes it's amazing that any of them get done just with, with some of the challenges involved. But yeah, there there's sometimes just some false starts. Yeah. Um, but I, just the stuff that I got to do left me with a lot of valuable knowledge and experience. And so between that and, the, and, and my experience at uh, USC, I was uh, kind of really welcomed at Activision and, and really it was funny my uh, the the you do a whole day of interviews and at the end of the day they take you up back then Activision had kind of recently come out of bankruptcy a few years before mm -hmm. uh, so they'd gone from making those cartridges for the Atari to having some trouble and they were making like other software products like word processors and stuff yeah. and and then so they'd come out of it and now they were legitimately trying to conquer the world of video games again. And so they were in growth mode. But at the end of the day, um, of all these interviews, I got passed from, you know, department to department of, uh, of groups of video game uh, teams, because there's different platforms there. Uh, I met with the Bobby Kotick uh, and, and then uh, the president of the, of the company wanted to meet every single applicant at that time was Howard Shore, <laughs> who had worked in, uh, what, Howard Marks. I'm sorry. I said Howard Shore. He's a he's a composer. Howard Marks. Uh, but he he had come from Hollywood, and so he he kind of he knew my former bosses at Metrolite, and so he kind of did this. Oh, okay. So uh, you know, do you know the owners of Metrolite? I'm like, yeah, Jim and Dobby. <laughs> and he's like, okay. Well, if I call them, I know them. If I call them, will they uh, say nice things about you? I'm like, yeah, I think so. Although. I probably didn't get on their radar a ton. So, so that was my, that was my entry into Activision and they hired me into the console division, uh, which was working on a couple, like two games at the time. One was mm -hmm. Apocalypse with the, it was a Bruce Willis vehicle. 
And okay. <laughs> no, it Wait. doesn't get remembered a lot, but it nice. had uh, the singer Poe as one of the boss characters. It was, it was kind of this uh, Hollywood I creation. vaguely remember <laughs> this. It, well, it's, a, it's a shooter game, right? Uh, yeah, it's like a third-person shooter game. Uh, and the, the, the cool thing that came out of that is oh, we established a relationship with a company that had become Neversoft. Mm-hmm. And that was really important uh, down the line. But I was on Pitfall 3D. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of reviving some of the old Activision titles and bringing, kind of updating them for the new wave of, uh, of uh, consoles that were coming out. And so I was working on the original PlayStation, PSX, and um, we're trying to figure out a way to um, adapt what was a 2D kind of side-scrolling experience mm-hmm to this new 3d um technology and and i got i was brought on as an asset manager which is not even a commonly used title in video games anymore i'm sure they exist in some format or another but essentially i was wrangling all these files and stuff but i started i started quickly kind of functioning as an assistant to the producer and kind of doing anything that he needed done i was like signing up for it (laughs) and so at one point, I actually even helped design the sound system for Pitfall 3D. Oh, wow, um, man. And w- like I, we were writing the rules, mm-hmm. I had this idea that music could be more dynamic than it was. Usually it was canned music bits, and it would either play through the background of an entire level, mm-hmm. or maybe it would switch to another kind of track or whatever at certain key times. I'm like, why can't it just never stop? Why does it have to switch tracks? Why can't it just kind of evolve? And so we came up with a system where we could take different layers of the music and turn them on and off at certain cue points in the level or if certain types of encounters were happening and it would change the kind of dynamic character of the, of the music. And I think it's really common to do now, but at the time, you know, this yeah, was you're like, pioneering. I was like, we don't know what we don't know how to do this. I just know what I think it should do. Yeah, in lieu of switching tracks, you just have something that's like self-sufficient and contained and going on repeat there. That's yeah. so, that's incredible, man. And and so wait, so you were assisting the producer. So you were the uh, asset manager, which you know the name kind of makes sense. You're wrangling in all the files. You're assisting the producer. What does a video game producer do? Like, what's the general scope? At least in the context right. of what we're going to talk about with Mutant Academy. Yeah, I think that's probably what, that's a good thing to establish up front. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> says, why are you talking to this guy? Um, so producers kind of at the core of what they do is they are the product manager and uh, budget keeper and um they run the schedules and the budgets. They coordinate with outside uh, contractors. They find people to do the music if it's done outside. They find people to do the cutscenes if they're done outside. They uh, they work with the developer. So often, there in those days especially, there was some internal development, but there was also external development, which you have standalone developers. So that's the difference between you know publishing and developers. Is a publisher is sort of on the top where they finance the thing they are responsible for distribution retail distribution in those times it was still very much physical in the stores yeah you know and so that was a big part of your business is can you move manufacture 
and and distribute to all the stores uh, the product um, and and then developer if they were internal they they worked as a team inside the development studio for the publisher but there was also developers who had their own standalone companies outside and you would seek them out and find a good fit for projects bid them out and then work with them to develop this product that you've kind of defined somewhere uh, as as a product what you'd like to do what kind of timing what kind of budget you have for it and then try to work with them to to see that through okay. and then it, and then there was also another relationship that was not this type where you would find a developer who has already developed something and then go acquire the rights to distribute that product and so that would happen sometimes too where there would already be and I mean, I think this happened, you know, with Quake, you know, we that we didn't say, hey, go make Quake. We just said, hey, we know you make something that we'd like to be, you know, involved in putting out there. And we've got, you know, we've got great marketing and we've got great distribution and we've got all these support, you know, functions yeah, as that will help you get like, that out. Yeah, as a publisher, like this is what we're going to do to make sure that we can like move the game. So we, we, with Marvel, I've, we've spoken with some people from Activision before. Remind me, did Marvel and Activision already have a relationship or did you guys come in and were part of like people who were like, we, we can do this game, we want to do this game, and this is what we can offer you? Well, technically, Activision had made a Marvel game before. I think in 1986, they had released a Howard the Duck game. <laughs> but Fair I enough. don't think that was part of the package that I was working with. <laughs> so like Activision, Marvel, too, kind of ran into some some uh, business problems in the 90s. And this, oh, yeah. they had restructured. And coming out of the restructuring, a lot of the, the rights to their their titles had been licensed out to various entities. And I think Activision uh, had picked up X-Men and Blade, Spider-Man, and, and I want to I say Deadpool. Although yeah. I don't, I don't remember one of those games being made while I was there, but I know eventually it did. Um, yeah. And it I know he showed up in later. some games. Yeah. 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 So that's and interesting. So, you know, sometime in the late nineties, they had gotten the licenses to those titles and they had started development of some products based on those licenses. And I know it seems hard to imagine a time when Marvel wasn't very hot, but that was a time when Marvel was not, was very no, cold. It was not. The, the, the comic books scene was, was, was floundering. They, you were lucky to get anything out there. And that's why you were able to get collaborations like Marvel versus Capcom, because Marvel mm -hmm. wasn't what it is today. You could have those kind of, you build those relationships. So, right. but, but the, but the X-Men movie was coming down the pipeline. So I'm curious, how did Mutant Academy sort of come out? Like, how did it start getting born? Like, was it, I guess I'm trying to formulate my question here. Was, was it something you guys conceived or was it something Marvel was in the market for since they had this video game coming out or was it Fox who was doing that? No, in fact, so the birth of X-Men Mutant Academy was actually very sort of start and, uh, in start and stop for a while. So it, yeah. it was conceived that, okay, there's a fighting game market and we know that, you know, we can pretty much, know that there's an audience for that on consoles and it was actually kind of big they had you know tekken and uh, soul blade and there were some there were some rather you know popular fighting games but they were their own ip and uh, we we're thinking as a company you know putting 
the X-Men a recognizable had name recognition. It had great characters in who, you know, were associated with battle. And so this would be a great combination. So they had been embarking on creating an X-Men fighting game since uh, before I've joined the product. Oh, wow. Uh, the project. Yeah. So the original producer on that project got hired away by, I want to say universal interactive. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and it had been being made by a company in London um, called, I think, Cyrox. And I actually worked with Cyrox on Asteroids 3D and Asteroids Game Boy Color. And so I knew those guys. And so they, and I'd worked with them. And so they kind of, as I was coming off of another project, asked me to take a look at this one. And, and so um, I made a bunch of trips over to London and was kind of seeing the progress. And I was kind of becoming more and more convinced that this was not going to happen. Uh, it, it just, it didn't feel like the technology was coming along that, you yeah. know, fighting games are so ultra specific in the kind of performance you need to have. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't really feel like they had a total grasp of the property. Mm. Um, and so I think we just, at some point decided, especially I think there, we got wind that a movie was movie release was forthcoming. We weren't yeah. affiliated with the movie at, at that point. But we got kind of this idea that wouldn't it be nice to kind of ride that wave? Um, and so we parted ways with the original developer and had been working with another developer called Paradox. And Paradox was a local to the LA area. So even though nothing in LA is easy to get to, it was a lot easier to get to than London from, yeah. from LA. <laughs> And so I don't I can... know, man. A five hour, <laughs> well, five hour flight from uh, from New York, but yeah, man, I, I've been stuck in some LA traffic in the past. But anyways, <laughs> continue. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't quite as bad as it was back then, and you could kind of time it. But they had worked on a game called Thrill Kill. If you remember this game, it kind of was very edgy for its time. Uh, I want to say it was a Take Two game, and. It had like fighting dwarves and guys on stilts and BDSM kind of dressed people and dominatrix characters. And it, it at some point garnered enough negative publicity that the publisher kind of decided they weren't going to release that. And that game was all but done. And wow. so that, that really, I think, was a, kind of a big blow to Paradox. Um, but Activision kind of came in at that point and said, well, you got this fighting game engine that really is pretty performant and you we know you can make a good fighting game um we've picked up the rights to uh wu-tang clan a, a fighting game by wu-tang clan and so they did this game called wu-tang shaolin style yeah and i tangentially worked on that project they they the producer of that game needed to do his interstitial cut scenes and he didn't know he had no idea where to go with it but he had heard that I went to film school and he thought that that qualified me <laughs> to, as well as anyone to write it. And I said, I'll do, I'll do anything. I love, I love the creative process. And so, I, I mean, I had done screenwriting for, uh, so I wrote the, the cinematic script for that and it was very tongue in cheek and referential to, you know, Kung Fu movies and stuff. And at least I think the biggest deal there was just to get the guys from Wu-Tang Clan to, to kind of be enthusiastic about it because they were known to be a little um, hard to nail down in terms of what, what they would agree to. I haven't thought about them until this very interview right now. Like, but yeah, they, <laughs> they had their minute and I'm sure they were impossible to. They nail were down. huge. Yeah. yeah. 
But there were so many of them too. But uh, and anyway, so after that, they co- coming off of that, the timing kind of worked out where we're like, okay, if we shift the X Men project to them, um, maybe we can get kind of some some momentum because they already have the engine. We know it, it. You know, they've released games on this engine. We know it's performant. We know that they they get it, and we know that we have a great working relationship with these guys. Only problem was. Now we didn't have a lot of time. Yeah, we we were really short on time in order to get this game out because we really, 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 for financial reasons and for cultural reasons and all that, really wanted to make sure that it kind of lined up with when the movie would be coming out. And right. I think that's when uh, when we started kind of getting the pieces together. We reached out to Fox just to kind of see if there was any interest in kind of working together on because. I don't think the other thing that's really hard to remember is there hadn't been a successful comic book movie that had made any cultural impact. I mean, we had Blade, but I don't even think most of the fan- people who had liked watching Blade necessarily yeah. were aware that it was a comic book movie or had ever read the comic books. Or right. so really, well, we're coming off the heels of like Batman and Robin, which I love. I, I do love that movie for what it is, a Joel Schumacher. But with the exception of like Batman. With Michael Keaton and Superman, yeah. I mean, superhero movies were I sh- like. Yeah. No, I shouldn't have said no superhero. I should have said Marvel superhero. Oh, movie. Marvel! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Marvel had nothing. We've talked about this before in the podcast. I mean, the X Men movie was a pioneer for modern, you know, superhero genre. Uh, yeah. and, and and the only thing we had before with the X Men or Marvel, they did a Generation X TV movie pilot, you know, which we mm-hmm. love here, and we've had many of the <laughs> actors, but it just did not resonate at all. No, and it was always considered beneath the audience. You know, it was B movie stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I know the Batman stuff did actually kind of legitimize it to a degree, but even they didn't take it horribly seriously. Yeah. Um, so, you know, X Men was really the first modern superhero movie, and the, certainly for Marvel was a huge turning point. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think Fox, like Activision, had acquired a group of their licenses. Yep. And so this was new for them and they were really invested in making it a success. And so this was this is magical moment in time where corporate entities that would normally kind of be really kind of oh this is mine and this and you know, you know, if you want to do a, a deal with us, let's make it let's make it hard and get the lawyers involved for 6 months. This went pretty pretty smoothly and fast considering and they were so gracious and i remember taking my playstation my development playstation over to the fox studios and demoing the game for them mm-hmm. and just just they were really kind and awesome and they provided me uh drawings pre- production drawings and, and artwork and st- movie mm-hmm. stills and then invited me up to the set in they were filming outside of Tor- in toronto and so i got <sighs> to tour and kind of get reference shots and and, and stuff for the movie sets and it really allowed me to kind of figure out how we could incorporate that vibe and make sure that our game which was definitely comic book first yeah yeah. could still legitimately feel like these were the same world okay wait 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 what what was the vibe like on set though i mean you're on the set of the first original x-men film did you see famka <laughs> was famka's hair so they they made sure that i showed up at a time where they were not um filming you know any of the uh 
the primary actors um and it was pretty empty and and shut down at the time so they gave me these kind of like boot uh like uh disposable booties that i had to wear everywhere because you couldn't damage any of the surfaces and you're like very careful about touching things because that the paint job that they did was made to look like metallic but it was obviously not and so you really couldn't get fingerprints on anything and so you had to be super, super careful what you did, but it, it was still amazing. And it still was like brought the whole world to life. And, you know, you can, if you look up high enough, you can see the end of the uh, the room and, you know, and then you're looking into a yeah. soundstage. But um, just being in that environment, you could really tell that they'd put a lot of love and care into it mm-hmm. and that they really wanted this to feel like a real world. And so I was like, okay, well, we got something to live up to then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really encouraged me to, to know that we were hitching our star kind of to the right place. Well, Jay, it's so funny that you're saying that because one of the things that I have to tell you, and and I've marinated on, on Mutant Academy for years, was why was it so beloved? Why, why was it a vibe? Why was it the specific moment? And I think you can tell that there is a lot of TLC within <laughs> this game. And you do areas, your areas, you do uh, stages like the blue area of the moon. You have costumes like the Dark Phoenix costume and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, you can tell the TLC. The, the fact that you went to Toronto and saw the, the actual <laughs> sets and you were like, damn, I have to capture this. But like um, in my game, that's comic book first. That's no easy task. You know what I mean? And you captured it pretty well. You and the entire team captured it very well. Well, uh, it was not. So a lot of company, a lot of games come out and they just slap a license yeah. on to something, you know, like they, they had this old uh, Mario Brothers knockoff and they just, you know, say, oh, yeah. well, let's make, you know, whatever with it. Yeah. We came, approached this as fans of the comic book, especially mm-hmm. Todd, you know, I, Todd was my right hand man and just, I would just, we just have long conversations mm-hmm. about what should be in it, what, what should, doesn't make sense to be in it, mm-hmm. you know, getting the right balance of characters and environments and just how much, wasn't fan service as much as this is what we wanted to see we wanted that's a location we wanted a video game to go to and didn't understand why no one had ever explored that before and what kind of captured our imaginations and seemed epic about that world and so maybe that has been something that resonates is you can maybe tell that there's a lot of love for the property in it and it's not just slapped on there well so so i have a question for you so you know, in terms of character, I, I can understand stages wherever you go, but character selections, you were you you do have the the core movie cast. So, did you were you aware of who was going to be in the movie, and that's why you had the characters set think, like that? So, eventually, we became aware of it as, as the movie got closer. And to be honest, some of it just naturally, serendipitously crossed over because that's yeah. just who the Wolverine, big characters Cyclops, are and yeah. why are they why would they not be in the movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly. and then i think there were probably a few a couple of adjustments obviously we have you know beast in our in our game yeah. and that was done purely for game purposes and, and comic oh, really? book purposes he wasn't going to be in the movie yeah so well, who would want that sociopath in the movie <laughs> <laughs> well okay, you may not know this but on the podcast we hate hank mccoy here <laughs> oh you do oh you yeah. should, should have told me that before uh <laughs> i'm gonna have to adjust my favorite character no right. <laughs> that's fair that we have plenty of people who've come out and said how much they love these it's just a running gag here but anyway well, yeah uh you know 
you just remembered though because of our association with fox todd and i got to go out to new york city for the premiere of that that movie oh yeah 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 it, it, well there was two premieres there's a west coast and east coast premiere we yeah. went to the first one on the east coast and because the big climax happens at on the statue of liberty, liberty. yeah they did a, a a screening with just tons of of luminaries at ellis island yeah and so we all yeah. piled into these ferries and and made our way across uh, the river to to Ellis Island uh, out and 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 just set up our game consoles and demoed the game to all everybody who came by and so I ran into Rebecca Romaine Stamos who uh, uh, well that was her name at the time and yeah Romaine I'm six five she's yeah. she's a very tall woman wow and, she looks gorgeous you know her mystique my God talk about like just groundbreaking. Like yeah, everyone she, loved her. I mean, you know, she there is hope she will return in Secret <laughs> Wars in the MCU. But how was she? Like, did she play the game? Uh, I I believe that people politely played the game, but I don't think very many of the uh, stars were um, that big of a game player at the time. Um, you know, some some people walk by and politely, you know kind of spent a couple of minutes, but they had lots of people to go meet at the time. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get anywhere near Patrick Stewart. He kind of had his own little area. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it, it was, I did ride the ferry back, um, with Stan Lee. Oh, oh man. How was that? He? I was have seen that. Oh my gosh. It was so cool because you know, I just had my little kind of all my equipment back, you know, and, um, I, I took my, my version of the game. Hmm. If you look, I don't know if I can hold this up. Oh, oh it's, it's gonna, not gonna it's, it. Yeah, it's there. So yeah, you can see there's my ticket to oh, the, your to the premiere. There. Oh and man, and right down awesome. here, I had Stan Lee sign my game. Dude, that is so awesome. What is that? And he was so gracious, and he was just like ebullient. And you just tell that he just was having the time of his life, and he loved seeing his, the stuff that he had created get the love and recognition that it really deserved you're the second person telling me that so there was this long-standing i don't want to say rumor but just impression within the fan community that stan was kind of like a like you know get off my lawn kind of personality <laughs> but we had margaret lesh on the podcast who you know created fox kids and was a big tv executive in the 90s and she was like, Stan just was happy to do what he was told. And she's here like, I don't understand these rumors online or this impression that people got. Stan was just happy to see all of the characters he created come to life and have a new generation discover. So verbatim what you said is what she said. And she was very close with Stan. And, you know, I don't have any inside information, but I understand there was a period of time where maybe he was on the outside and yeah. you know, all his creations were being controlled by other companies or people. And he would, but by the time, you know, I worked on this project, he had been brought on as, you know, the, the uh, emeritus guy that was, was the you know godfather. And he was involved in all sorts of stuff and, you know, including making cameos in the movies, which became this like Hitchcockian kind of tradition where he had to be in it. Yeah. And so it was a hot dog know, bender for the first one. So I, I could see him maybe being a little sour if that was in fact true that he had been pushed to the side for a while. But by the Very time I point. met him, there there was definitely an appreciation shown to him. And I think, you know, you you just could tell that this was such an important part of his life and just he just was so proud of his children. 
you so know? how far in advance wait, 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 wait let me let me back up here so how many how long did you have to make the game what was the official timeline for the game well after i took it over i think we had something like eight months which is ridiculous that's nothing oh my god oh my god yeah. like that's no time at all and, and so you... if you, there's some shortcomings to the game i would like to just point out that what we did with that time was really cool yeah. Um, and, and I think you would see in X-Men too, that some of the stuff that got left on the cutting room floor kind of started to make it in. Yeah. Um, but we were just really concerned that the core of the game experience had to be really solid because yeah. eight months is not a ton of time. So great paradox had this great engine. They had a lot of experience. The thrill kill engine, right? That's what. Yes, okay. the, the Shaolin. Uh, uh, yeah, the, that that engine mm-hmm. had been. We modified it for this game because mm-hmm. we knew that there was sort of an expectation for what an X Men game could and should be. And the the prior game that we had kind of shut down was trying to be more of a soul blade kind of thing was just, just full true 3d cameras rotating all over the place. Characters uh, are, are, are um, kind of rendered in that full 3d way and are moving I, all over the, the, who, who, which characters did you have for that one? I'm just curious. Or was it just like shots of Wolverine? Were they just beta? I, I know we had Wolverine. I know we had Cyclops and I think we had apocalypse. Oh, that would well so uh, you know i think i don't remember the exact reasons but it did not make sense for us to incorporate him into uh mutant academy yeah um it just was a little outside of the core yeah um especially at that time when nothing you know he hadn't been a movie where he had been a a major plot point or anything um were were there any characters that you had wanted to include but just didn't have a chance to so we had in. put some hardcore effort into seeing if we could incorporate Marrow. Oh, um, yeah. Got, she's coming off of Marvel versus Capcom. Very, very, yeah. very popular at the time. I think we even maybe had a preliminary model for her. Yeah. Um, it was just, again, not enough, I think, core of, of what we needed to accomplish. And... We need, and that may have been one of the the characters that got swapped out for one that we knew was going to be in in the movie. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I think we kind of picked well to begin with. I think we kind of knew what yeah. was, especially for the first X Men game that you know Activision is going to put out. Um, we kind of knew and had settled upon a really core group of characters that balanced really well from a game standpoint because it wasn't just hey what are the popular characters but which ones make sense to go up against each other and will naturally have different playing styles that will you know balance against each other and and were you guys inspired at all by the marvel versus capcom series which had come out a couple years early absolutely it set the gold standard yeah really (laughs) for not only uh, i mean probably arcade fighting games uh because it just you know, you had kind of two camps and there was these new 3D fighters, but they kind of felt slower and more strategic and 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 and, and the Capcom thing is just all action. It's yeah, just all yeah. fast and it's all snappy. And because, you know, you got rid, because it's in 2D, they can just do things at the frame rate of the technology of the time that 3D just couldn't pull off. And it just felt so responsive and good. And yeah. we were very 
cognizant of that. And also it just was so colorful and just true to the comic kind of vibe. You know, there's a reason why they wear in, you know, blue and yellow uniforms in that era is because they really pop off the page. That is one of the things we've talked about with this game is just the coloring for it and how it just pops. I mean, even right here and even in your background, I mean, you can just see it. It just like pops on the screen. And and it, I mean, guys at home, like PS1, Papa John's playing this game with those <laughs> colors just like glowing off the screen. It was a total vibe, you know? Yeah, well, you know, and, and in that era, there were a lot of games that kind of felt very Nine Inch Nails, dirty, grungy yeah. kind of, you know, this was this this was definitely an era where sometimes it got really dark. Yeah. And just that was not the vibe that we thought was really appropriate for for an X-Men game at that time. Um, so well, speaking about a little bit more grungy, though, you were able to get in the movie costume skins, you know, as as like unlockables. Where, how far in advance were you able to get those? I mean, you have eight months. You know, you're you're. It is a time crunch. Is it a situation where you just built the character and you can just reskin it? I mean, what? How does that there, work? So we did have a base character, and you'll notice that the Wolverine in uh, the movie Wolverine in in Mutant Academy is not. Hugh Jackman's body, right? It's <laughs> yeah. it's our it's the comic book Wolverine's body, yeah. who's impossibly blocky, yeah. uh, and you know he's a spark plug. And um, so there was it's called reskinning. It wasn't as simple as just painting a new skin on them. In yeah. many cases, you had to alter some of the geometry on the models, but you had a pretty good base model to work with. So in many cases, you didn't have to start from scratch. Yeah, um, for the characters. Um, and we we got a hold of the pre-production art uh, maybe five months out from 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 you know release so we had sketches of the cost from the costume designer you know and we kind of had okay. some turnarounds uh you know they they do costume tests with the actors in them and they do them at the different angles and i think we had we we had some of those and for all i know i think some of those things are in the game because you know we have unlockables where there's this whole cerebro that you can go in and look through old comics, or you can you can look at um, some of the movie the movie trailers in there, and there's some movie stills and production stills. Yeah. So yeah, a lot 100%. of that we just said, hey, I'm a fanboy about this stuff. I could see other people being real interested in this. Can we put this in there? And you know they were really cool about it. And this is a time before YouTube. So the fact that you're playing this video game and you have the trailer for X-Men in it, I mean, again, it wasn't <laughs> something that was readily available. You would see a trailer in the movie theater only, and it was gone forever. That's it. So the yeah. fact that it was right there on the PS1 was 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 so good. I have to ask, because you mentioned Rebecca Romaine Stamos, you got to you see her, and she politely played the game. Did she <laughs> see the skin for Movie Mystique? Because... That is like the breakaway. Sorry, I mean, you guys nailed that. She looks so good in there. Yeah, well, the good news is comic book characters are basically drawn naked already in a lot of cases. <laughs> so we had plausible deniability about, you know, to the ESRB. Just, that's just a comic book. She's wearing tights. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, I think maybe because of how awesome that costume was, for all I know, the artist put extra extra care into it because <laughs> yeah, that was that there was detail in there that I didn't know you could get on a PlayStation, yeah, um, at the time. And so yeah, it did look good. Um, maybe so, that one worked better than the comic book one in that particular character's instance. <laughs> so 
what so you have eight months and there was so much you guys had to accomplish within those eight months i mean you did the cut scenes for example which were really really great was it ever planned to have like an overarching story with the with the cutscenes, or was it just we have eight months we gotta get this game out the door you know we'll just do these little vignettes that so i think what was really important especially with the time we had but even without that being a restriction we did really think that it was appropriate that we captured the essence of this universe and not try to tell one specific story so it was more about the characters than it was about what the characters were doing outside of this battle arena because also we wanted to take them to all these locations that would have been really hard to string together into a cohesive understandable story you know, yeah yeah you know jumping from blue area to savage land i don't even think continuity wise you could make a case for it right so um i think it was more important for us to just focus on the characters and what would be their essence and also with that kind of time 3d 3d cutscenes are are some of the more intensive production things that yeah. you can do and so really we didn't want to sign up for something that was going to be unachievable at a level of quality that we were going to be happy with um, we had contracted with this company out of St. Petersburg, Russia called Kreat Studios, mm-hmm. um, which they were just fantastic to work with. And they did really excellent work uh, and turned around things pretty quickly. Uh, I, th- I think I did the storyboards for all of those. Uh, this is, again, at, at that point in my life, I was living under my desk. And <laughs> this was this was my life, but I was also just all in. And well, I have to tell you, the, the storyboards for that are great. You know, it, you nailed it when you said you captured the essence of the characters. I mean, that is how, I mean, Gambit on an airboat, you know, <laughs> like Gene, you know, fighting the brood, you know, Wolverine with the Weapon X, Cyclops, you know, with the Sentinel and like the baby carriage. I mean, that is, that is, those are the <laughs> essence of the characters and you got them. Well, I hope you got my little uh, Sergei Eisenstein reference with the baby carriage scene. <laughs> for Battleship Potemkin. That was my I, film school uh, nerdiness coming through. <laughs> I mean, I know that. I, I know the reference. I didn't know where it originated from, but now I do, man. But, <laughs> but you know, the thing that, that I'm just noticing with just like talking to you right here is that there was so much love put poured into this game. And one of the things that obviously that you just made all of the X-Stands happy and made it seem more official was you brought back a lot of the X-Men animated series voice actors. Yeah, that was that was one of the greatest kind of coups that we made on that game. And that, you know, a, there's a lot of stuff that's done in L.A. There's actors, you trip over actors just walking around the block, right? But yeah. we really wanted something that would tie our product to the past and the future. of x-men and really make it very comfortable experience to someone who already loved that property loved that comic and we went to the actual production company that had done the um original 90s era uh, cartoon animated series and their their voice acting producer director just kind of had connections to all these guys. And so it was a kind of a package deal for the people we could get. I just remember a couple of people not being available on, yeah, like Cal our, Dodd. on our schedule. Yeah. Cal Dodd, unfortunately, but you had 
Allison Smith, who did Storm. You had Tony Daniel, who was the second voice of Gambit. You had David Hemblin, who was Magneto. You had Jennifer Dale, who was Mystique. Doc Franks, who was Sabretooth. And George Buza, who was obviously Beast. <laughs> and Catherine Disher as Jean Grey. I mean, that is... I mean, I got to tell you, bravo on that. And, you know, at the time, you didn't really... There wasn't, like, an IMDb page where you can confirm that... And again, I was a teenager, so I'm not very bright, but I'm like, I think that sounds like Gene from the animated series. You weren't quite sure, and it just sounded so good, man. Well, uh, yeah, we just thought that that was one of the important things to kind of give that that kind of seal of authenticity. And so we're really glad that we could do that, and that was available. And uh, my associate producer, Gene Bong, uh, went up to Toronto for a couple of days and, and sat in there you know, recording studio with them and just, uh, you know, uh, she, she's such a pro though. She'd done this with them so many times that it just, they just fell right back into those characters and it was uh, pretty easy for a pretty easy process to get that. Was rogue ever going to be considered for the, for the game at one point? Do you remember? I know I'm asking you for something that happened like 30 years ago, (laughs) But was was she ever considered? And I only ask because we're big friends. We're friends with Lenore Zan, who does the voice of Rogue for the animated series. So I guarantee she was on the short list at one point. And I think, uh, like I was saying earlier, we, Todd Jefferson and I would have a ton of just arguments about, okay, well, you know, what about this? And what about that character? And, and why not? And we're just trying to figure out how to balance what would they be able to do in a fighting game? Mm-hmm. And and sort of what would their powers look like? And some of their powers are a little harder to depict, you know, in a, in a way. And some of them just kind of were too samey or or didn't didn't you know feel like something that I'd want to play. And so yeah. she just you know we couldn't make the she didn't make the cut. It's not that we didn't want a rogue, yeah. Um, and especially with the movie tie-in, it would have made a ton of sense. Right, but um, Rogue, like Mystique, you have certain hurdles with, you know, and we saw this even with X-Men Legends at one point. What, How do you replicate Rogue's power? I mean, she can punch, she can fly, but her main power is observ- absorbing and, like, right. you know, Mystique and, being, you know, Mystique, I don't believe shapeshifts in the game, and she instead has her big old gun. No, yeah, so that was the hard thing with Mystique is, you know, her, her kind of signature power doesn't translate great to this style of fighting game. So we kind of had to lean on her assassin background or you know her access to the high-tech weaponry to give her <laughs> something. But it also made her a great range fighter um, yeah. and kind of gave her a slot in the lineup that made sense for, for a game like this. So what were some of the challenges with, with making the game when you look back on it? Was there something in particular that you were like, damn, like we, we thought this game wasn't going to make it because of this hurdle? Well, I mean... So first of all, just the whole transitioning from having worked on there had been a game that was in production and now we've yeah. got eight months left to 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 really get this thing done. That was a huge hurdle in and of itself. And so it was kind of a no small miracle to be able to turn on a dime like that and, and sort of put this together. Um, I don't remember anything. I mean, it was all a blur because it just it just was kind of this momentum it was like this is happening we're doing it it was yeah. it was running downhill as fast yeah. as we could and so i think you know the process of getting a game approved at that time uh was especially nerve-wracking you uh S- sony had to manufacture all the master discs and you had to 
kind of submit a gold master to them and you'd be up all night in the mastering room uh, Activision had on on the on the studio floor and trying to get just get the machine to put out the required number of eight identical discs or whatever you had to you had to turn in a whole bunch of them and then they'd come back with this laundry list of things that you know, you, you had to change. They had this long kind of list of, of requirements for how menus work to how things, you know, how long things can take to how you have to kind of present information and save games. Like that. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, well, you don't get the right message when you pull out the save game cartridge in the middle of it saying, please wait saving or whatever. And you're like, uh, okay. So they, they really had gone through a lot of permutations of all the things that someone could do that could break things. And they wanted mm -hmm. you to not allow them to do that. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was probably the hardest part of the whole ride, to be honest. And I, I flew that game up to Sony personally. Really? Up Red, yeah. Up in Redwood, uh, California. And, and, uh, the masters off myself. <laughs> I think we were under such a tight time crunch. And I was like, I am not leaving this up to a courier no. or anyone else. I'm going to walk this into the building. And if they got questions, I'm right here. Wow. So what was it like de delivering the game and the final product and all that stuff? Where I was probably sleepwalking at that time. <laughs> I barely remember it. I remember, I think, being a little underwhelmed by the building I was in. I was like, this oh. is Sony. <laughs> Looks just like an office building to me. Okay. But, you know, uh, is just one of the things and that's the kind of like as a producer you you're ultimately responsible for getting that thing out the door uh, in his yeah your name's on this yeah in the company's name's on it and, <laughs> and your responsibility is to just to do right by by the game itself and by you know the company essentially the financial backer right so so you know. jay is is Beast your favorite X-Man? Was that going to be your answer? <laughs> that was going to be my answer because I didn't want to give, you know, the standard, oh, Wolverine's the baddest ass guy ever. He's awesome. I like Beast because he's this awesome mix of of intellect and raw acrobatic power. Yeah. And he's got so many side talents. And I just, I guess I like this Renaissance man kind of vibe he's got. And, um, and to be clear, in the 90s, he was that renaissance man yeah. and he was out finding a cure for the legacy virus and all the stuff. It's modern era beast. That's well, a raging yeah. sociopath. <laughs> you know, the comics have retconned a couple of, of the characters over time in ways that I wouldn't necessarily have agreed to do, but I understand that you've got to get new fresh stories and give the characters room to grow. But I'm, I'm sort of solid nineties era beast guy same same he, he's he's even a pilot i mean come on he can do, can do anything so was he your favorite character to sort of help bring to to the game and especially you have george who's there who's the og voice actor was he your favorite one to sort of you know create with the team yeah i'm gonna tell you no actually um Toad, Toad ended up being the, the oh, guy. Oh, of course. Of course. Thank you for saying that. Toad gets so much shit, you know, out there. But like, we had someone on recently who was here, like, who would have ever thought they would make a Toad figure? It's like, Toad is so great. Yes. I love that. Yeah. He was, I mean, just from a fighting standpoint, yeah. he just, it, it was so amazing because he just moved around in a way that was, it was so 
animal like, but and then with the tongue attacks, he could he could just and he could just swipe under your feet and knock. Yeah. He, he just was he was almost overpowered, for, I, I would say, but he was so fun. And he was yeah. just having a, he wasn't like, hey, I'm going to kick your butt. Like, you know, <laughs> he was just having a good time. And just that the character just really was just awesome. Uh, came out well. Uh, and so that was kind of the, my, the most fun I had with any of those characters. Um, what about the least favorite character? To, who gave you like the most trouble <laughs> with with creating them? Um. Well, at one point, I think... Uh, Jean Grey and Phoenix had a oh! sash. She had a sash that yes. was really friggin' hard, and so I think you'll notice she doesn't have that anymore, yeah. or sometimes. But it would, you know, it had to. She was flying, and so it yeah. had to kind of behave Move. like it was had physics on it, and it, it was just always kind of bugging out or something. And so it was, it was, it was, it was that that one was tough. I didn't, it didn't have any problem with her character, although as a floating character it's really hard to animate that in a way that is convincing mm -hmm. uh you know instead of just kind of hovering that it has to kind of flow with the moves and feel like she's impelling instead of just kind of there and so that was hard because that's not a natural thing to model you know motion after and and so you don't you want it to be dynamic because it's a fighting game but you know i think we, we went around the block a couple of times trying to get her right so we are huge gene gray fans here at the podcast and and we have to ask this very meticulous question you know <laughs> she is, she is wearing her phoenix costume yeah not her 90s you know traditional costume what was it i i can understand why you would go with phoenix but i want to hear from you guys okay do you remember why why phoenix and not normal 90s so because video games are a very you know, uh, the visual medium, I know comic books are too, but they can, they can kind of imply things happening through the storytelling that we just mm -hmm. have to do in real time. And so something when it's just got psychokinetic powers, there's only so much we could do. And we wanted to kind of expand her repertoire uh, uh, of, of abilities. And we really thought that one, that costume just really is awesome. Yeah, so it is. I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of just kept going, hey, you know, <laughs> can, can we just do this costume? <laughs> and so, uh, but also just the flame, the kind of bring in that kind of uh, Phoenix Force, you know, fire powers to the fighting uh, attacks is just was kind of a really good fit for the game. Yeah. And you were able to get Dark Phoenix out of that really easily. Hopefully it's just a change of the palette. And you know, she looked great. I mean, I, I think that set the bar for all of her appearances in fighting games later on. Okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> like I said, nobody ever talks to me about this stuff, but maybe we're we're here to tell you everything. So, so Beast and Gambit didn't have movie counterparts. Obviously, I, I think mm -hmm. Beast at one point was supposed to be in the movie, but you know, obviously, they make He's it. He's a hard um, guy to pull off on the budget they have. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, how did you guys pull off the the movie adaptations of them? Did did you have to get any permission from Fox or Marvel, or did you have free reign to just well so. So we already had the designs for the other characters and they, you know, they, they kind of, it's a, it's a uniform, right? So they, they, they kind of all had a vibe to them. And so I think we created some mock-up drawings and 
went through an approval process with Fox and they'd tell us, yeah, that's close, but you need to change the collar here or the color yeah. here. This is, you know, this color is not usable or whatever. There'd be yeah. a little back and forth, but eventually we'd get to a design that they were happy with. And, you know, at that point, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty just, easy. I, yeah. You guys also had, I think, I never played the the Game Boy exclusive, but you guys had Pyro and Apocalypse there. Were were they ever slotted to appear in the main in the main console? No, so I think Apocalypse might have been sort of you know us missing him from you know the, that original version of the game and just really liking the character. I don't, I, I wasn't, I didn't do the Game Boy game, so I can't yeah. answer specifically why Pyro's in there. But it may have also have been a choice based on kind of his unique abilities. So the other thing, and I, I'm pretty sure this was probably just crunch time, but like Toad, Sabretooth, and Mystique didn't really get formal endings. Was that more a byproduct of you have eight months to, to do this entire game so we can get in what we can, but these three characters, we can sort of, you know, yeah. do something. That, that, was definitely, that was definitely a schedule thing where if we wanted to do these other characters to the standard that we wanted to get them done to, mm-hmm. there we weren't going to be able to do all of the characters so we just figured out which ones really um were the the ones that people would most want to see uh little vignettes for and and make sure they got their due and so, you know i wish we could have gotten them all in that would be fun i could have done some more storyboards under my desk i mean listen <laughs> the mystique ending where she's here like oh great a statue of you magneto i know exactly where to stick this come on <laughs> So, yeah, that probably was mine, and I, I might have been a little, you know, punch drunk when I wrote it, I have, but, um, you know, it's a, like her costume, there, there's no saying that that's what her intention is with that line. <laughs> but it, was, it also was kind of character, you know, right on character. To, I oh, love yeah, the quips absolutely. that these yeah. characters have. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, one of the things that, again, like, I think, and I'm going to ask you this question. Why do you think it resonates? But I guess what I'm trying to say is it's for these little instances. You understood the characters, especially that, like that. But why do you think the video game, why do you think Mutant Academy still resonates till this day? Well, I'm going to I'm gonna have to say that it, it kind of was this magical time where the X-Men were becoming super relevant. Yeah. And so it, it kind of hit on all these notes of of the kind of bringing the comic book fans together with the movie fans. And also I think a lot of it has to do with just the time that it came out where the fighting games of that era were of a very specific type on consoles. Mm-hmm. And this really kind of differentiated itself. And so maybe it just was more accessible yeah. uh, to a lot of kids who were, who were, you know, playing video games at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can tell you it's not the deepest or most challenging fighting game out there, you know, but it's even, fun. In, even of its time, it wasn't, but what is there is, is definitely made with a lot of attention to detail and it is a legitimate fighter. And there, I think that if this was your first fighting game or your first X-Men game, you probably weren't disappointed. No. I, I hope you weren't. 
No, I, I don't think anyone was. And it came with a ticket to see the movie. Do I remember that correctly? There was Some of them insert. did, yeah, originally. Yeah, yeah the, the first run of them. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, that, that did happen. There was a lot of promotion stuff that went on. So we did a version, a demo version of the game that got put in boxes of Nabisco uh, Corporation cereal. Okay, that's uh, cool. Actually, I brought that disc with me. I don't know if it'll... So oh, yeah, it's, it's that, showing right there. That's a master for the, the one that went to the Nabisco boxes of... I don't know. I don't even remember what they made. Uh, you know, that's... your breakfast cereal. And so it there came was, out... Oh, I'm sorry, go. So there's just a lot of... You know, Activision had a great promotional department, and they just knew kind of how to get the word out. And it, was, it was great. And, and you guys pubbed the day the movie came out, right? Like it, it online, there's some of the dates are off, but a lot of the references have it the same day the movie was released. If it wasn't day and date, it was yeah. intentionally very close. Okay. And, and I'm sure, you know, kind of with physical distribution, yeah. that is a little squishy. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely meant to release day and date with the film. That was, that was part of, um, sort of the entire concept for teaming up with Fox in the first place is to kind of team up like the X-Men to, to be kind of greater than either of us individually could be. We could really push this kind of over the, you know, push it over the hill a lot better together. So Jay, I I know we've been talking for an hour and a half, but you were working on X-Men Legends, and if you have a couple more hmm. minutes, I do. I want to ask you about your experience on working on X-Men Legends to go from Mutant Academy to X-Men Legends. What were you doing with, with, with that game? Well, so sort of my love of games at that time centered a lot around uh, Diablo uh, 2 and, and Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2. I was really into uh, RPGs and action RPGs specifically. And I just, I kept, as we're working on this game, I just kept saying, you know, it really feels like a great world to set an RPG in. Mm -hmm. And these are great characters. Uh, It just makes perfect sense for this to be an action RPG. And I kept kind of proselytizing that throughout the, the studio and just kept kind of putting bugs in people's ear. I actually think the original name that I floated for Mutant Academy was X-Men Legends. And... Ah. I, we, I remember we focus test Mutant Academy. They had a room with like this wall that was made out of glass. And it was that, you know, you'd go into this little hallway behind the glass and sit there and watch the people they brought in. And they'd ask them, okay, well, what did you think of this? What did you think of that? And here, let's, let's, let's test the names. And uh, X-Men Legends wasn't on the short list. Wow, so, that's interesting. Uh, so but they, they wanted it to be kind of a fighting school. And that's the Mutant Academy came into, and it was a tie-in, you know, with um, the, the Institute. So it made sense. Um, yeah. But so I just held on to that name and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to write a proposal for this, this action RPG. And we had a, um, we had a executive producer on the floor named Dave Stoll who had, we, we, you know, we'd always just, the great thing about Activision at that time is you just spend so much time co-mingling and you would, someone would bring over their game and say, Hey, can you, you know, give me an idea or test this out or whatever. We were just constant, you know, flow of creative ideas. And he had one point said, you know, I'd really love to make a game based on acrobats. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Like, yeah, what, like these circus acrobats, they could like, it could be a fighting game and they would just, combine their powers together and you know they'd be able to 
you know, throw them at each other or whatever. And I was like, okay. I mean, I could see that being fun. I don't know about the circus angle. And so I kind of held on to that. And so when I was writing the proposal for this, the whole idea that, uh, that I thought the hook would be is that X-Men are a team, you know, they're yeah. not Superman going to, against the world. You know, they are this group of people who are greater than the, each of their parts. And so if they can work together, like the old fastball special, mm -hmm. um, that would be just an awesome premise for what would differentiate this game from other games. Um, so we got it all set up. I was moving to Dallas. My wife was had taken a job. Uh, she had actually was joining a practice in, in the Dallas area. Um, she delivers babies around here. And <laughs> so we were fixing to be pretty far away from Los Angeles, but there was a developer in Dallas named Edge of Reality that was working on Spider-Man, uh, the N Nintendo 64 version of Spider-Man. And so they said, well, why don't you go and help them finish that up? Why don't you be a, our producer in Dallas? And so we got that wrapped up and started, we're, had started working on X-Men Legends there with edge of reality they decided that they were more comfortable in austin texas oh. like, hey, we're gonna move to austin texas and i'm like the babies don't 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 leave <laughs> dallas so yeah. i'm here yeah. so at that point i had to kind of turn over everything that i'd done to activision and 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 join a group that was in dallas because activision didn't have any more stuff going on locally gotcha um and so i really didn't have anything to do with the core development of X-Men Legends. It went to Raven and it yeah. kind of disappeared for a while and didn't hear back. And occasionally I'd get sent something and say, Hey, what do you think of this or whatever? But it was really Raven's baby. Mm -hmm. And I really love what they did with it. And I think they hit some really great notes with it, including the cell shading and yeah. that just the kind of the throwing mechanic. And it really just, it, it it's a great game, but I, I just, I did not, have any role in the active development of it but i think some of the ideas that were on that original design document mm -hmm. you can see a few of them did kind of get through yeah and i think patrick lippo who was the games director mentioned mutant academy when we when we spoke to him i don't remember if it was on the interview proper or it was just before when we were chatting but yeah, you guys, your influence on the X-Men games. I mean, Mutant Academy, Jay, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed this. Oh, Jay, appreciate it. Jay, what kind of projects do you have coming up? So I'm now I'm uh, the studio vice president of a company called Balanced Media Technology, and we create um, AI and machine learning training uh, solutions that are integrated into video games. Oh. And so our kind of vision is that every moment that you spend playing a game is doing something good for the world or that that actually creates real world real world um, effects. And That's so awesome. we've created games where you can that, that you play that while you're playing them, you're training a machine learning algorithm to help um, diagnose um, age related macular degeneration, which like 60 something percent of the population will eventually get and it helps their optical coherence tomography scans, it gets really kind of lots of big technical terms, but essentially what happens is every machine learning algorithm takes data and learns over from, from being trained over and over again. Now you can do it the boring way, or you can put that training in integrate it into a video game mm -hmm. and then crowdsource 
that training. And, and so you can do a lot of really cool things, uh, with that. And so that's, that's where we are in, in developing a variety of games around that concept. And Jay, for folks like me who try to hunt people like you down on the interwebs, is there any way, is there any place fans can go to engage with you on social media? Tell them, tell you how much they love the game, et cetera, some of your past work. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I'm not, I'm, I don't have much of a presence on social media because, you know, I'm a producer and we're generally more behind the scenes kind of fellas. Yeah. Um, but uh, you could, the balanced media, balanced, B A L. A N C E D M T. Um, you can reach out on Twitter or Facebook or any, you know, uh, even LinkedIn if you're that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they'll get, it'll get to me. Awesome, man. All right, well, Jay, thank you so much for having uh, for being with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate yeah. it. Well, thanks, Sugar. The age of apocalypse is now over, and we'll see you next time. The Age of Apocalypse is over. For now.